we're going to start the Exodus series uh, today, which is very exciting. This is a very cinematic, very rich uh, book, and it's going to definitely, as we journey through the series, I really believe it's going to enrich and deepen and strengthen uh, our faith. And so Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It means a going out or a departure, and it's the historical account of God's deliverance of his people from slavery uh, in, in a very cruel uh, Egypt and a very cruel uh, kings, actually. And so today what we're going to do is just a quick overview of Exodus and then look at just the first uh, two chapters. And so why? Why are we going to do the Exodus series? Why have the elders felt that this is a good idea? And I think, well, first of all, and, and these would be true for all people in all times and all places, first of all, we need to get to know God better. We do. Um, often we live off this kind of very skinny revelation of who God is or one that we received a long time ago, you know, and we, it doesn't grow and it doesn't develop. And we serve a God who's infinite, and like we can never stop getting to know him. Um, I, I had a, uh, in a church I was at in London, the pastor used to say, it's like, uh, it should be like an onion. There's just more and more layers to God's character that we get to know and that get revealed to us. We, you don't just you know, find the outside layer and then that's it. You actually realize there's more and more to the character of God. <clears throat> and we also, we're so distracted. We pursue so many other things. And we forget. We forget who God is. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves. And there's an American theologian, Philip Riken. I think I've got this quote up here. He, he puts it beautifully in terms of why um, to know God better. Secondly, we're going to get to understand his redemption plan better. Exodus is this picture of the gospel. Um, We get to, as we look at Exodus, we get to understand the gospel better. We're going to be looking at Exodus in relation to Jesus, and we're going to see him leaping out of the pages and so many kind of uh, foreshadowing, so many themes, so many characters. We're going to get to see Jesus. And having just spent a, a over a year in the book of Mark, Exodus coming to the, an Old Testament book is going to help deepen our understanding um, of the cross and of salvation. We need, to we need to look back to Exodus to get a full picture of, of the cross and of salvation. And thirdly, we're going to get to understand God's mission and, and our mission better. It's not, just, it's not just a story of our redemption, but it's, it's, a, it's a model of mission. It's what we are called to be as Christ followers uh, today. We'll see that God, while he's very concerned with our spiritual redemption, he's also concerned about is- issues of injustice and about the physical well-being of his people. These things go hand in hand. It's not just one or the other. God cares very much about both. And, and 
as I was thinking, God, why? I'm, one of my um, strength finder gifts or, or strengths is connectedness. I always want to understand why. Like, why this, what is this connected to? Why is this coming to us now? And I think for us, it's very much the crazy times that we live in. How many times have we heard the words unprecedented? Eh? This is like unprecedented. But, but actually, I want to suggest to you that every generation, even generations in the past, feel they're living in unprecedented times, having to endure things that no one else has had to go through. It's kind of normal. It's kind of normal. That's, we, we think this is like no one's had to go through this before. And Exodus really, it helps give us perspective. It puts a perspective on our suffering and the challenges that we face. And my mom actually sent me something or sent our group something on, uh, on our WhatsApp group, a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I think kind of uh, says this point very well. He said this in 1948 when there was the invention of the nuclear bomb. So everyone was like, oh, you know, this thing is just some madman with the codes or a button, that, you know, and we're gone. It's just crazy. How can we live under this thing? I mean, how, how, much, how many years do we have left? Five, ten? And there was this unprecedented fear And this is what C.S. Lewis had to say about that. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year, as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you may already be living in an age of cancer, chronic pain, uh, an age of paralysis, the age of air raids, the age of railway accidents, the age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our own situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. I mean, this guys he's not holding back. It is perfectly ridiculous to go around whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and which death itself was not a chance at all, but a a certainty. The first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of dart, not huddled together like frightened sheep, and thinking about death. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Isn't that just so like, I mean, you could have written this yesterday. Um, and then recently, uh, when Rigby, when my dad came here and he, and he preached and he, he brought a, uh, a word, he, he went to Genesis and he went to the Abrahamic covenant and he spoke about God's promise to Abraham and how we as Christ followers, if you're a Christ follower, not do you only have a new future, but you also have this amazing new past. You're connected right back to Genesis, to Father Abraham. And that's what we're going to be looking at in, in Exodus. We're going to be coming to see, like, well, what happened next after that promise came to Abraham? What happened? Did, how did this nation emerge, and how does it relate to us? The story of, of Exodus shows how God's promise to Abraham in Genesis starts to get fulfilled and how it includes us. And then finally, if you're just a very practical person and uh, you want to just draw lessons for everyday life, Exodus is full of them. 
uh, you know, as, as someone living in uh, the southern or eastern suburbs of Cape Town, Exodus will give us very practical insights into issues like taking care of the unborn, issues of racism and murder, how God can use the weak and ordinary people, uh, the importance of singing praise, the nature of true community, uh, how to rely on God's presence daily, uh, the need to take counsel from others, uh, obeying God's word, and the issue of idolatry and true worship. There's a lot of practical things that we're going to cover as we go through the series. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, the first part of this message was just to give an introduction and an overview to the book of, of Genesis and, sorry, Exodus, and I thought, wow, it's going to take me 15 minutes, and I rather found this very cool little video that does it in five minutes with people that can draw very well. So if we can play that quick overview video, Jono, thank you. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed. The family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed 
at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible bit so we understand a bit of the context and go just to the first two chapters so if you do have your bibles here if you could turn to exodus chapter one and uh we're going to get going on our journey so reading from verse one it should be on the screen as well i think i would put it in there there we go these are the names of the sons of israel who went into egypt with jacob each with his family Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and his brothers, uh, so now Joseph and all his brothers, and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Wow. So this is, we're jumping forward 400 years since, since Jacob and his family have gone into Egypt with his family of 70. Um, so this is Abraham's grandson has gone into Egypt to escape the famine. They're rescued from the famine. And God starts, his promise starts to come true. His promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you into a, a, into a nation. 
You know, this is Abraham and, and Sarah who couldn't have kids. God's promise to Abraham is, I, I'm going to make you into a nation, and I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you, and I'm going to make your name great. And Abraham believes God. Abraham puts his faith in God. His faithfulness is credited to him as righteousness, and God's promise comes true. We can see that this family of 70 is now, it's actually become even more than a tribe. It's become a, a mini nation, and so much so much so that it says here that the land was filled with them. We see this really, this is, this is the good. We're going to start with the good. This is a really good, fruitful picture. And, uh, and what is God's motivation here? Why is he wanting to do this? Well, God wants to be known. He wants to be known through a people group. You know, unlike other gods, you know, if you were basically wanting to uh, create a religion or if you wanted to make a particular god known or famous, you'd, you'd erect an Asherah pole or you'd make a building or something like that. Unlike the other gods, this god, the god of the living, wanted to make himself known through a people group, through people that would bear his image, that when you see this nation, when you see this people, you'll also see God. He wants to be made known through a living people. And so this is very, very good here. But I mean, I would, I would, something that struck me is note that the timeline. You know, do you think when God's promise came to Abraham that Abraham anticipated it taking 400 years, you know, and that it, it would take generations for it to be filled? And I thought it was just an interesting insight that sometimes God's timelines and sometimes what we expect, it takes a little longer. You know, God works to his own schedule and his own timeline, but his promises are true. His promises are yes and amen, and what he says come to pass. So this is very, very good. But let's see what happens in verse 8. This is the bad. Uh, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and then leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. And this is interesting. But the, the more they were oppressed, and the more, the, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. It's interesting, this, this nation that's actually is a blessing to Egypt. You've got to think back to like when Joseph went there. He, he interpreted the dreams and he, gave, he told Pharaoh what to do so that they could avoid the famine. This is a nation that, as God said, you will be a blessing to the nations. The Israelites are a blessing to Egypt, but for some reason, you know, down the line, Pharaoh suddenly feels threatened by the source of blessing, this, this nation that's blossoming on his soil. And, and why? why? What's the big problem? The problem is Pharaoh feels he's, they're undermining his own quest for power and fame and glory. You know, he wants to be the ultimate God. And so he begins to oppress them. Um, and, and somehow, the more he, 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 he oppresses them, the more they prosper. It's like that, that shouldn't happen. They multiplied and spread even more when they were oppressed. And there's something about that promise over God's people. There's something that he puts into their DNA that, that means that they and we, 
So we've got to locate ourselves. We don't need ideal, perfect circumstances in order to thrive. In order to fulfill our mission, in order to glorify God, not everything needs to be perfect. I must say, I'm often, I'm often guilty of like, okay, when this happens, when I finish this project, I'll have a bit more time. When I get my bonus at the end of the year, a bit more money to be generous. Uh, when we move house, when this changes, when, 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 like then I'll be able to, to, to thrive a little bit more. But there's something that in the DNA of God's people that means we don't need circumstances to be perfect. In fact, it's in the midst of trouble. It's in the midst of trouble that we seem to flourish. And it was the same for the early church. If you read in the book of Acts, it was actually the persecution designed to stop uh, the gospel from spreading that actually accelerated its spread and its growth. We're a bit like Feinbos. If there weren't the fires, we wouldn't germinate. We would just like fizzle out. But there's something in our DNA that's like the Feinbos that it, it causes us to uh, hardship as counterintuitive and as sometimes hard as it is to maybe even embrace that. But hardship can cause us to flourish. So we don't need to wait for perfect conditions to respond to God's call on our life or to be God's people. Some of us might be doing that and might be you know, waiting to be somewhere else or for time to pass and for things to get better. But actually it's right now that God is calling us to flourish and to, to, to be a blessing and to represent him and to be his people. Let's get back to the story at the back end of verse 12. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now this is really, this is doubling down. Uh, this is taking it to the next level now. So to the midwives whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the, bo- it's a, the baby is a boy, kill him. And if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't, I don't know if it was true. I mean, you know, maybe I, what I'm saying is, I don't know how, uh, maybe they gave them a little bit more time. Do you know what I mean? They didn't rush when the baby was coming. They just happened to not kind of be there. But yeah, interesting. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw in the Nile, but every girl live. Wow. I mean, Pharaoh, I mean, he is on a hiding to nothing because the more he tries to oppress and enslave and make life difficult, the more they seem to flourish and the more God's people seem to grow and become more numerous. And then he, in the end, he says, well, not just the midwives, but like when you see a young boy, throw him into the Nile. 
And the Nile represented like a, like a god. You know, for them it was like very powerful. For them, throwing the babies into the Nile was also a way of like, well, it's, you know, like let, let the god decide whether they live or don't. But we know that this was very much, it was state-sponsored genocide. This is genocide that we're seeing here. In fact, it's worse. It's, it's infanticide. Is there anything more evil? But I want you to note the incredible courage of the midwives. I mean, Pharaoh, I think that video did a good job at showing just how scary he was. This is a superpower, and this is a guy with unlimited power and authority, and he's telling them what to do. And for some reason, well, amazingly, they're able to, they fear God much more than they fear Pharaoh, and they don't, they don't do it. They don't do what he asks them to do. These are absolute heroines, and they're mentioned by name. No, we don't actually know Pharaoh's name. We don't know which Pharaoh this was, but these midwives who fear God and obey God instead of Pharaoh, God honors them by mentioning their name. And Israel becomes even more numerous. Just being God's people, there's something resilient and powerful uh, at, at work here. And it's amazing how good continues to, and, and ultimately triumphs over evil. I'm sure it doesn't go into too much detail, but there would have been many lives lost. You know, it wouldn't have been like nothing bad happened. There's a lot of bad stuff happening here, but the, the account is showing us how ultimately good is triumphing over evil. People continue to fear God they endure hardship, they're faithful in their jobs. And, and, and just by doing that, just by being faithful and obedient and fearful of God, it continues to thwart Pharaoh's plan. But as I said, the people are, are definitely still suffering here. You know, there's, they're, they're basically in a, in a situation of political, economic, social, and spiritual slavery. And is, is God just going to allow that to go on? You know, on the one side, you could say God is, God is being made known, okay? And people are still flourishing to a degree, but actually there's this real suffering. And is God happy for people to just continue suffering just because there's this, um, this flourishing on the other hand as well? And ultimately, these guys still need to be saved from evil. They need a redeemer. And amazingly, God has a plan, and we start to see this in chapter 2 from verse 1. So we've had the, the good, we've had the bad, and now we have the Moses. And uh, reading from verse 1, the birth of Moses. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> you never know with Greg. He might have been laughing at me there, not with me. <laughs> the good, the bad, the Moses. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, 
just happened to be there, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Wow, what, a, what an incredible story. I mean, I know we did it in you know, Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, and it's probably you know, quite a well-known story. But when you actually really look at it, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, I mean, ultimately, this Israelite boy, you know, that shouldn't, uh, you know, that should, should be dead, somehow it's Pharaoh's daughter rescues him, embraces him, and, and enables him to live, and he lands up in Pharaoh's household. It's almost like, almost like God's got a sense of humor here. Like, no matter how, how badly Pharaoh wants to kill the Israelites and, 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 and snuff them out, he's going to land up with one of them in his household, being nurtured by his daughter, who pays his mother to, to raise him and look after him. I mean, this is, this is absolutely unbelievable. And, and again, you've got to notice the courage of more women. So Moses' mom, who's Jochebed, and his sister Miriam. You know, I don't buy this. Uh, the, the, have you guys seen The Prince of Egypt? This, this story where they basically almost randomly, you know, create the little basket and put him in the Nile. And it's like through the rapids and through the oars of the boats. And this, this like, you know, this thing. It's just amazing that somehow this, this mini ark doesn't capsize and the baby doesn't die. I think, I think these two... I mean, it required a lot of boldness and a lot of prayer, but they probably, you know, Jochebed probably asked God, like, God, what can I do? What, how can I save this boy? And I'm sure she, she knew that Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river to, to, to bathe. And she, she looked at the circumstances, and I'm, I'm sure she, this, this was a very bold and intentional plan, in my view, and that she, she, and she, um, they went and did this, it wasn't by chance that Miriam was standing there to suggest to Pharaoh's daughter that she could find you know, a random Hebrew woman to look after this little boy. There was, there was an interesting plan here, but it required a lot of boldness. And amazingly, Jochebed, she gets, to raise, she gets to raise her boy. She gets to go to the market. She gets to do whatever she wants, and she gets paid for it. And um, it's amazing. And, and, and something interesting is happening here. There's Moses, he lands up when he's old enough in the palace, in Pharaoh's palace. And he becomes this kind of dual citizen. He gets to learn both cultures, both the Hebrew kind of Israelite culture and the culture of the palace. He, he kind of, he gets to know them both. And uh, he has incredible passion, compassion for his people. We, we, but he lacks a bit of wisdom. And the, I touched on it earlier. He, he sees an Egyptian who is uh, beating a Hebrew slave, and this kind of sense of injustice rises up in him, and he ends up killing the Egyptian who was beating the slave. And, um, and it's, it was unwise, and, and he has to flee as a result of doing that. But it's interesting. You can see that Moses, he chooses, on the one side, he's got, he's got these two cultures, right? He's got this palace that represents like, infinite riches and insane amount of opportunity. And then he's got his, his, his real people, the people he belongs to, where there's just like kind of maybe not 
that much clear opportunity. Maybe there's, uh, you know, there's oppression, there's slavery, there's all of this stuff. And somehow Moses chooses, he chooses God's kingdom. He, he, he forgets about everything the world has to offer and all the potential success, and he chooses God's kingdom. It's like a real story of parenting success. You know, like for me, it gives me a lot of hope. You know, like I think like my kids, they spend a lot of time, you know, at school, at different friends' houses. Um, you know, my, my kids have also got to make, they're going to have to make a choice. But somehow, through God's faithfulness, and um, if we keep pointing them to him, um, they're going to choose. You know, that's our prayer, that they will choose to pursue God's kingdom um, and still be very successful and still, you know, all these things that God gives to them as, as gifts as they live out their lives. So anyway, so Moses, he's, he's killed the Egyptian, and um, we're going to skip uh, verses 11 to 21, but, but I'll, I'll summarize. Basically, he kills uh, this Egyptian. Pharaoh hears about this. I'm sure Pharaoh knew about this, this boy that was in the palace. You know, it was probably a, really annoyed him, but now he's got, now he can actually, he's got uh, justification to, to get rid of him. And so Moses has to flee to Midian. Um, and it's there where he becomes what he, he says, I'm a stranger in a strange land. And he gets married. And it's actually a very interesting, this is a very humorous, humorous story again, where you know, Moses rescues these seven daughters from these shepherds that keep wanting to you know, send them away from the, the well. And there's this, this dad, and he's got these seven daughters and, uh, you know, in this kind of very agriculture kind of uh, scenario. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's like, oh, dad with seven daughters in those days, you know, when you, you, your daughter couldn't just go study at UCT or do this or that. If you had a daughter, they needed to get married. And this guy comes along and he rescues them and he chases off the shepherds. And the dad says, he's hearing this story at night and this guy and he's awesome and he helped us. And the, and the dad's like, okay, so where is this guy? And they're like, no, we, we left him. He's like, well, go get him and bring him here and Give him something to eat, please. Like, you know, and any, anyway, he ends up giving one of his daughters to Moses in marriage. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a humorous one, uh, if, you, if you can see the kind of setup. I got distracted with that story. So here we have Moses. He's, he's, he's out of Egypt. He's gone. He's a stranger in a strange land. What, what about the people back in Egypt? What's happening there? Let's skip to verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered their covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant, and he was concerned about them. He wasn't just going to leave them in that scenario. He's got a plan, and we can already see hints of that plan, that God is raising up a mediator, a deliverer, a go-between, someone who can save them, someone who can go and speak to Pharaoh, someone who can represent God to Pharaoh, and the, that perfect person was named Moses. And that's what we're going to see in this journey. Next week, we're going to see the, the burning bush and his return to Egypt. 
And we're going to see as we go through Exodus, there's this amazing uh, parallel between Moses and Jesus, between the, re- the redemption of Israel and our ultimate redemption through Christ's work on the cross. In fact, if the, 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 the structure of the book of Matthew and the book of Exodus, they, 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 the writer Matthew purposefully structured Matthew on Exodus. There's this incredible parallel. So on the one, in Matthew, you see Herod wants Jesus dead. In Exodus, Pharaoh wants Moses dead. You see Israel leaves Egypt, and you see at the very start of Matthew, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary leaving Egypt. Uh, Israel then passes through the Red Sea, and you see Jesus in Matthew passing through the waters of baptism. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. Israel receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and Jesus provides this new pathway towards blessing in his Sermon on the Mount, the two mountains. And you see other things like Israel receives manna from heaven, and Jesus, the bread of life, comes and he feeds the 5,000. Any Jewish person that would have, reading the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, they would, have, they would have just seen Exodus, and they would have seen Jesus revealed as the second Moses. But far more than leading us out of oppression of Egypt or, or even Rome, but leading us out of oppression of sin and death and into a new creation uh, and the kingdom of God. And so as we land, uh, why don't we locate ourselves um, in the story? We, we are those people like Israel. We, we, we were hopeless in slavery. But Romans 5 verse 8 says to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even be, before the hardship, God was already coming with a rescue plan for us. And we're going to sing a song now that really glorifies God as the hero of the story, that affirms uh, many of the truths that have been shared today. So maybe I, if I can invite you, we have prepared some communion. And what will be great is if um, you, know, you guys can come up and just get the elements and go back to your uh, seats. And rather than a quiet and reflective time of, of communion, I think what will be great is as we sing the song that um, it's Egypt, which is, it's got a lot of these truths, as, as these truths start to drop into our heart, as we start to see Jesus in this Exodus story, why don't we just embrace that bread and that juice, those elements, and thank him for what he's done, and and, and let's just glorify him together in song. So go for it, guys. Don't be shy. Head up to the, the table.